Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining. Welcome back to yet another episode here on the DCVC podcast. I'm your host, Akash Bhatt, and we're back again this week with another great guest. Joining me today is Shishma Kaushik. She's a partner at Avishkar Capital, an early stage VC firm currently deploying out of its sixth fund and has about half a billion dollars in AUM. It was great catching up with Shishma, and I only recently learned that she's also a huge fitness freak, just like me. And that's what's great about this podcast. You get to know the other side of VCs and what kind of people that they are outside of their jobs. Let's hope to learn more about Shishma and Avishkar Capital. Join me as we head into the episode now. Welcome to the podcast, Shishma. It's great to have you here with us. Before we proceed, I wanted to give Abhishek Prasad a huge shout out for introducing us and allowing us to make this happen today. And for those tuning in for the first time, Abhishek is the managing partner at Cornerstone Venture Partners and featured on episode number 10 on the podcast. So do check that out. So let's jump into the episode, Shishma. Tell me how are you and how is everything at Avishka? All well, Akash. Thanks so much for having me on this podcast. Uh, really uh, excited to share my thoughts and my life journey uh, so far. And uh, life at Avishkar couldn't get any better. That's amazing. That's great to hear. Just this week, we were discussing internally and checking the pulse of all the team members and what they were seeing out there in terms of investment activity. It seems like things are picking up, but we are nowhere near normalcy. So is that the same on the other side as well? Are you, are you, are you guys seeing the same thing? Are things picking back up? Uh, so I must admit that work has suddenly increased fourfold for all of us. Uh, because on one hand, we are managing portfolio companies. So we, I mean, just to let you know, we have about 69 investments. Uh, across six funds and uh, every day we are fighting new battles so a while portfolio management uh, keeps us busy on the other hand we are fundraising for our portfolio companies as well as for our fund uh, we are managing lp expectations so i don't think there has ever been a dull moment in in this lockdown i can imagine we've got 78 investments and once the whole lockdown period was was exercised we started like scrambling trying to understand how our portfolio companies were doing what can we do to support them if they were fundraising could we help them in that process and trying to just make sure the health of our portfolio remains either how it was pre-covid or hopefully better which i i don't know if that's the, if that's possible but somehow allude towards the fact that it could get better at least in the future <clears throat> No, absolutely. I think we are also trying to strengthen our portfolio, create extra runways, um, make them uh, more resilient to come out stronger uh, post the whole COVID crisis ends. In fact, during the lockdown, we completed one investment and the other is underway. So, uh, yeah, I don't think uh, I can say anything has slowed down for us. Is that uh, uh, investment public as yet or do we have to wait until it comes out in the media? No, it, it is public. It's public. It's in a grain bank in the agri-tech space. That's amazing. I think we'll get to that a little later in the episode as well. But let's start with your background. What were some of the key events in your career that led you to where you are today? Did you always know you wanted to be in venture capital? I don't think anyone wakes up to say that 
I think I should be in venture capital. <laughs> <laughs> so I started very uh, normally. Uh, I, so I'm an engineer by education. I'm from Bangalore. And uh, I post my engineering, I had a startup, uh, entrepreneurial startup uh, in, in the building services consulting space. And, uh, you know, I did that for about four, four and a half years and went on to do my MBA from the Indian School of Business Hyderabad. And uh, post that, uh, you know, ever since I completed my MBA, it's, uh, it's been over uh, 15 years now. Uh, I have been in investing, uh, strangely. It's not like I went seeking for it, but yes, I have been on the buy side. I started off in real estate uh, investing, private equity investing uh, back in the day. Uh, very quickly realized that uh, that asset class is not something very exciting. I enjoy working with uh, in building businesses and that comes more with working with startups. And I had this opportunity of joining Avishkar uh, early in Avishkar's journey. Uh, they at that this is way back in 2010. Uh, the assets under management of Avishkar was as low as uh, I think about 27 to 30 million dollars. And I was coming from a real estate private equity fund where if you were anything less than a billion dollars, people would not even look at you, right? So I said okay, but the story of Avishkar was very appealing, and I took that plunge. And I'm quite proud to say in the last 10 years, Avishkar has grown from a $30 million uh, fund, asset manager, uh, to now be managed close to a billion dollars across different asset classes. So it's been quite an interesting journey. And um, no, I didn't wake up one day saying, I want to become a VC investor. I woke up one day saying, I want to build businesses. <laughs> and I thought this is the best place to get in. <laughs> That's, that's amazing. And it's always great to have a fellow Bangalorean on the podcast. I can feel a very great vibe coming across borders and reaching me here. So that's amazing. Uh, but I got, I got to start by asking you, uh, or I got to actually start asking all my guests this question. What do you love the most about your job? Uh, so among other things, I get to meet some of the most brilliant people, some of the most passionate, driven people. And some of the wackiest ideas, right? And which job gives you that opportunity? And everyone I meet has pushed me to think more, uh, has given me better perspective. And uh, I, I really don't think there are too many other jobs that makes you think that way. That's what makes this interesting. That's amazing. Now, I have two different but related questions for you, but we'll split that into two sections. So you've been an investment manager, an investment director, and now you're a partner. Could you explain to our listeners what are the primary distinctions between each of those roles? And what is the commitment when you would decide to become a partner at a venture firm? What are you signing up for? Um, so I started the journey, right? So when I started off, uh, not even as an investment manager, I started as lowly as an analyst, right? And that's when people do all the grunt work. And uh, it's never ending grunt work to begin with. Uh, there's just so much of desk research. And, and when you start in investing, it's, it's also glorified. It's so glamorous from the outside world. But once you get in, you realize that this is just a lot of grunt work one has to do. You just have to go through reams and reams of data, uh, trying to make sense of that data, trying to put it all together, 
and sometimes uh, what, what the data speaks to you could you know tell a very different story to someone else who is looking at it so how to make sense of all of that um, i think it starts from there and the actual uh, interaction with uh, entrepreneurs comes a little much later in uh, in one's life and uh, and rightfully so right i mean for you to make sense of what the other person is saying uh, can only uh, come once you know what to make of what the other person is saying right and that comes with a lot of experience and so uh, when when you ask me what is it that a partner does different from the others i would say you continue to do the grunt work you continue to do all the heavy lifting while managing people and a partner's role is far more difficult because you're managing multiple stakeholders on one hand you have to manage uh, the expectations of the team uh, the other you have to manage the expectations of the entrepreneurs you're backing and most importantly the third stakeholder who comes uh, into existence once you become a partner is the expectations from lps right so uh, and uh, you are as good as the last exit you made and that's your track record so uh, that's uh, so the onus becomes a lot more once you become a partner now that's a great point that you make there there's a lot of dirty work that needs to be done and sometimes that never comes across to people on the outside so thank you for highlighting that now you started your career you know all the way at the bottom as an analyst and now you're a partner do you remember the first check you wrote and how did you source that company and what led what are some of the things that really stood out in that deal that made you want to invest in that company uh that's a very interesting question so the first check i wrote uh was in a startup uh bank at that time they were not even a bank um and it was at the peak of a crisis that had hit that sector uh, so for those of you who are not familiar uh, with uh, the microfinance industry in india uh there was a huge crisis that broke out in 2010 and uh, the entire sector was at the brink and at the peak of that crisis we were uh, we made our investment in uh, this really small startup uh, who were just starting out and they were only barely about a year into existence uh so to take a call at that point in time on a the sector and b the entrepreneur and c uh, the company uh was very challenging right uh, like if you looked at data everything would have screamed out to you and said do do not do this investment but i must uh, i must admit that it's been 10 years since we made that investment and that has been one has uh, given us one of the better exits uh, we did a approximately a 5x exit from that investment uh, and probably because you know we went in early we got a lot of goodwill points as well uh, with with the entrepreneur until date i think we share a very good uh, equation uh, with the the company the company has grown uh, grown to become uh, quite large uh, in its own right uh, it's utkarsh small finance bank they went on to get the banking license as well um, they've gone on to get close to 12 13 uh, institutional investors on board uh, so but you know for us to take that plunge and write the first check uh, i think is quite a memorable event for me i mean that is incredibly interesting for me because we are currently in a very similar situation it might not be the same crisis but in a way 
this pandemic is a crisis for a lot of startups. How do these conversations unfold internally with your colleagues and your LPs? How did you get through that investment? Forget trying to convince colleagues and LPs. I couldn't convince myself on making that investment because obviously the first question that comes to mind is, how will one exit from this company, right? So uh, uh, when we invest, the first filter we put in is, uh, will this be exitable in the next five to six years? And when there's only gloom and doom around you, uh, it's very hard to predict uh, something like that. And, uh, you know, uh, when we were talking internally, uh, someone uh, said, let's pray to God, but we have to do this investment. Right. So that's, that was how the conversation was. And I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, good sense prevailed uh, in the larger collective and we went ahead and made that investment. And even our LPs were extremely supportive of that investment that we made. Uh, and uh, in fact, they also followed on in uh, that, uh, company uh, later on. So um, I guess they also saw merit in something like that and uh, it worked out well. So that was your first investment, which was um, not to be right. extremely dramatic, but it does seem like it was one of those situations where, you know, if that had gone wrong, a lot of people would have really questioned your judgment going forward. Now, how have you learned from that situation and how has that impacted your investing thesis and persona in general? looking back at it about 10 years, 10 years ago? I think that that definitely has a huge bearing on all the investment decisions I made post that, because uh, what came out is sometimes data doesn't tell you everything. Sometimes the facts are not always enough for you to make that decision. Uh, if you are a good investor, you should be able to look just around the corner uh, where data is not obvious to take certain calls, right? And if you are backing a strong uh, promoter and a strong management team uh, in a strong business model, then it doesn't matter what data throws at your face. You should just go ahead and support them. I think that's a wonderful point. Even if the founders haven't built what they're, they want to build yet, they should understand something about the market and the customers very, very deeply. And I think that is a very good indicator of a good investment at some point, even though they might not have product market fit, they might not have traction, but if they really understand the problem, they understand uh, the customer really well, I think half the battles won there. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's see, uh, I, I, the way I deconstruct companies is, and the soul of the com- the soul of the company is the entrepreneur and he gives the energy for the company to thrive and if they have the vision the ability to execute then half the battle is you know won there that's amazing it's good to know that you pay a lot of attention to the founding team because at the end of the day the conviction and and what they know about the market is really going to help them succeed in in that space now, I wanted to come in this segment and talk a little bit more about Avishkar. Now, could you share a little more about Avishkar to our listeners? You know, what are some of the areas of investments that you look at? What is your investment thesis and philosophy? And how, will, how have you guys evolved over the last 20 or odd, 20 or odd years? Yeah, uh, so Avishkar, as I said, has a very interesting journey. It started uh, back in 2001 uh, and the the founder for that was Vinit Rai and he's quite a visionary 
me. So he started with a very simple investment thesis back in 2001. When he was looking at uh, in investing in general, he saw all the money was going only to large metros uh, or all the capital was flowing into businesses in uh, metro areas or in big cities, right? He said that there was a lot of opportunity uh, in rural India as well. And he felt that if capital was provided to good quality entrepreneurs who were solving real problems, uh, solving for real problems in the rural areas, there could be a case for investment. So with this hypothesis, we started way back in 2001. And... Uh, and I must admit that, you know, our hypothesis has been evolving over the last two decades. And today where we stand, uh, we look back and say, okay, we've learned uh, from the various funds that we have uh, built. Uh, so of the five funds that uh, we've ga gathered all our intelligence from, uh, we now are saying, A, uh, we have to back large scalable opportunities. Uh, at the helm of it, good, strong promoter management teams are required. And, uh, you know, those who are solving for big problems are those who are actually solving for developmental needs around uh, in, in countries like in India, in Africa, in South Asia. Very similar problems that we are all facing. So, uh, you know, uh, what can we do to support in terms of capital? Uh, for something like this. And uh, Avishkar uh, focuses, basically we exist to bridge the opportunity gap for the emerging 3 billion. That's the vision that we have. And so we focus largely on sectors like financial inclusion, agriculture, and essential services. When we say essential services, it means uh, sectors like uh, health, education, and logistics, supply chain all of them could be bundled under uh, uh, essential services and uh, but now in in the sixth fund uh, the evolution has been the emphasis on technology because we cannot ignore the fact that technology is the one driving factor that can achieve the 10x scale that one needs to achieve and for countries like ours where there's a huge uh, demand uh, there's a huge supply problem in in many areas um, I think technology can definitely fix that requirement. Very interesting. And you also invest outside of India, right? That's right. So, so we have a fund for South Asia and uh, we're now launching a fund for Africa. So is that focus on emerging markets driven by the LPs or is it the other way around where you've developed the thesis and said, hey, now we'll go after LPs or interested in tapping into these markets? How do the conversation play out on that front? So I said the, the initial thesis uh, came from our recognition of uh, of the the demand, and uh, when we started speaking to LPs, uh, you know, uh, LPs have been always aligned to us. Uh, so different LPs have come have uh, supported us in different phases of our evolution. And uh, so today where we stand, we do have a support of a lot of uh, development finance institutions in addition to a lot of corporates and pension funds who are all waking up to understanding the importance of SDGs and 
uh, to talk a little bit about SDGs. SDGs are Sustainable Development Goals, uh, which the UN defined back in 2015 uh, of the goals that globally uh, countries need to meet by 2030 uh, in, in areas like uh, inequality, gender equality, health, uh, uh, environment, climate, energy, uh, building robust societies, communities, all of that. So uh, I think there has been an alignment from LPs as well and a recognition of the work that we do uh, to meet the SDG requirements as well. Now, that's amazing. It's good to see that it's not just India that's the area of focus because India obviously uh, an emerging market. Everybody is looking at the country, but also there are developing regions in and around the country that can really provide, as you previously mentioned, the next billion users or create opportunity for a lot of companies to build sustainable ecosystems. Now, in that segment, you spoke about opportunities. Let me play the devil's advocate here. What, what about the challenges? There are These are extremely difficult markets to sometimes penetrate into because more than anything, behaviors need to be changed and education needs to come along at the consumer level for startups to succeed. What, in your opinion, has been the challenge over the last 10, 10 to 15 years in this space? And how is that changing today with, you know, with more technology that's penetrating, with more access to internet and other devices that is really bringing about this change in the ecosystem? That's a very interesting question, Akash. And uh, clearly there is a challenge, but that's what makes this very interesting because uh, even the size of the opportunity is so large uh, that overcoming this challenge becomes imperative. Uh, so I will answer that question with an example of one of the investments we made, uh, again, in another agri-tech company called AgroStar. AgroStar started off as providing farm uh, solutions to the farmer at their doorstep. Right. And as anyone who would know, uh, in India, uh, farmers are very small and fragmented. And uh, unlike in the Western uh, areas where, you know, people hold large parcels of land and farmers are also quite well to do in India, unfortunately, they are very small and uh, they're normally the ignored lot. So um, uh, this, uh, uh, the, the entrepreneur duo are actually two brothers. One of them actually came down from the U.S. and identified this big problem and set out to solve for uh, such a huge problem, right? Uh, and uh, the, the model was very compelling because it was talking of disintermediating the agri-input supply chain and drive efficiencies uh, in, in this system by leveraging technology. Um, which is all very nice, right? But the question was, uh, will these farmers uh, adopt to something like this? Or will, will they be even accepting of something like this? Will they be happy to open uh, an app on their phone uh, and place orders and be comfortable placing an order on the kind of agri-inputs, whether it's seeds, pesticides, insecticides, uh, or, uh, you know, even engage on a platform like this. Uh, because as everyone knows, uh, somehow we all feel that technology is uh, the mainstay of urban centers and of millennials. Uh, and uh, one does not really focus on uh, communities who don't belong here, right? So it, it was very challenging to begin with. But I think, uh, you know, th these guys have done a fabulous job of building their technology, making it 
more uh, well, how do you say it uh, more accessible uh, in in the language that the farmer understands in 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 the format in the visual depictions in the formats that they find appealing and now the engagement of these farmers have also gone out gone up for, uh, multifolds uh, over the years and in a post covid kind of an environment we see this adoption picking up much faster than before that's a very interesting example you picked to answer that question because you invested in agrostar right from seed all the way to series c so that's right do you believe in backing your best performing startups all the way through and if so why should investors think about seeing through some of their investments if they are you know investors who are investing both at early stage as well as growth stages right so uh, that's again very interesting akash and this has been one of our uh, evolution in in the learning process of avishkar as well that we realize that uh, you know especially seed investors we spend a lot of time and effort in the initial years and taking a company from 0 to 10 is probably harder or hardest in in the growth evolution of a company than from a company that goes from 10 to 100 right 0 to 10 is where all the grunt work hard work efforts put in and uh, then you know when investors come in at later stages uh, things are far more steam streamlined the model is far more evolved the the uh, the teams are uh, have come together better and uh, you know there's a certain momentum that has been created so we realized that uh, a relay uh, investment uh, strategy works very well for us uh, where you know we've done the grunt work we've got the companies to a certain size why not ride with the entrepreneur in in taking the company from 10 to 100 100 to 1000 right so that uh, so we do have a very strong follow on strategy in our uh, uh, in our following fund i love that i found that very very interesting and you also previously defined the 13 sustainable development goals that you have at avishkar on the impact side of things so when you talk about seeing some of your investments through from almost start to finish especially on the best performing companies how do you measure the impact that you're looking across such a diverse range sometimes we're not just talking about agrostar in this case but some of the other companies on your portfolio as well like what are the metrics it's so interesting sometimes when people say we are continuing to invest in this space because we believe in it it's something that's that's going to expand that's going to create a lot of value in the long term and india especially is going to be the home for impact investments in the next decade or so but how do you measure that how do you measure impacts in this front i'm really curious to understand how you wrap your heads around some of these metrics right so uh, impact measurement is quite a heated topic globally as well right and people believe that just because we are able to measure something it makes you an impact investor but i must say uh, measuring impact uh, can be looked at from various lenses uh, and uh, we have very specific filters uh, for impact so when we evaluate deals when uh, you know whether it's a go no go even at the beginning stage we do apply the impact filter to see okay does this meet the impact criteria and then we start looking at 
the other filters of does it meet the financial requirements? Is the model good? Is the hygiene factors there or not? Right. So impact uh, measurement for us is very core to what we do. It is not just uh, a measurement that is done at the end of taking a financial decision that, yes, let's do this investment. Now let's figure out how to go ahead and measure impact. So uh, we have a very specialized team just who does impact measurement. Uh, we track uh, things like jobs created both directly and indirectly. What is the economic benefit that uh, a beneficiary is getting from the product or service of a certain company? Uh, you know, and uh, also uh, when we say livelihoods that are created, the second order livelihoods are also measured to say, uh, so for example, if you're talking of uh, affordable housing, right? Uh, in India, as you know, in smaller cities and towns, uh, people who build uh, or their own houses actually use their homes for small scale, uh, as small scale units for development of MSME products, right? Like an uh, agarbatti or incense stick manufacturer can do a small scale business at home or uh, carpet weaving or uh, any kind of uh, small business enterprise. They use their homes as uh, a small business unit. So uh, when, when we are doing, when we make an investment in say an affordable housing finance uh, company, uh, it's not just creating a roof on the head or providing uh, clean drinking water or providing sanitation facility, but also what what is the benefit of a house for this family? And so it goes beyond the obvious in, in the measurement. So we, we may measure the carbon footprint, we measure the kind of waste generated across our uh, different uh, companies, uh, the kind of uh, burden uh, uh, the companies put on the environment, uh, whether there is uh, the efficient treatments that are put uh, before effluent discharges. So th that's the kind of uh, impact measurement that we do in our investments. So are these measurements usually done at every subsequent round of funding or is it during the process uh, during the life cycle that you're that you're having these discussions with the founders? Uh, so it is multi-stage. Uh, one, at the time of investment itself, we do our measurement uh, and uh, we put together a metric of uh, the kind of uh, 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 the data points that we will be collecting over the course of our investment. Every year, we audit the kind uh, of impact that the company has created. Uh, and, you know, we relook at the metrics or uh, matrices that have been uh, earmarked for that. Uh, we tweak on that. We improve on that. And uh, so every year, Avishkar comes out with an annual report uh, on impact also, uh, which talks of the kind of impact that we've created across uh, the various companies that we've invested in, across the geographies that we've invested in. And that's publicly available on our website as well. So I guess a follow-up to that is when you hear about startups trying to raise either Series A or Series B, they usually have certain benchmarks that are set by investors saying you've got to meet these. And then once you qualify for that, let's talk about opening up this round. Do you also incorporate some of these impact benchmarks into subsequent round of funding goals um, that the startup needs to hit before you can even open those conversations? Um. 
Yes and uh, no. Uh, the reason is uh, we do believe that uh, if, if the model itself lends uh, itself to uh, creating the impact, uh, it will be achieved. Right. Um, and so similar, like how we have financial milestones, we do have uh, impact milestones that are put in for uh, subsequent rounds of funding. Interesting. Now, I actually wanted to segue into my next segment, which is very similar and related to the previous ones that we just spoke about. And I guess a way to measure success, is, as, as you mentioned, is also to be part of a journey. And being part of a journey would often sometimes entail being a board member. Now, one of the core areas of portfolio support that's mentioned on your website is governance. Now, I want to delve a little deeper into this topic. So let's begin with the basics for the sake of our listeners. How would you define governance for startups and what does that really entail at different stages of investments? And this is very similar to maybe something that we spoke about in the previous segment where we spoke about you know, measuring as part of a multi-stage process. Right. So I'll, 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 give, I'll answer that with a few examples, right? Uh, so normally when startups uh, come together or, you know, a group of uh, co-founders come together, uh, they're not very driven uh, by, uh, driven in the sense of trying to solve the problem on hand. And so they kind of overlook things like governance. And, uh, you know, they're also caught up in their execution or in their day-to-day uh, work that uh, some of the hygiene factors that need to be there are overlooked. And that is where an uh, investor like us should come and play the right role. For example, uh, say in initial seed funding or co-founders coming together and putting their seed money uh, in place. Most often than not, we have seen that these co-founders don't even have any kind of an agreement uh, with each other of, you know, what is going to be the basis of their investment, how much of it is going to be through sweat, how much of it is going to be their actual contribution, uh, whether it's going to be in form of debt, whether it's going to be in form of equity, uh, if there is some kind of an exit or if there's some kind of a disagreement between the co-founders, how is that going to be resolved, conflict resolution? None of it normally even crosses their mind because they're like, you know, let's first build the business and everything else will fall in place. And so there we kind of step in to say, listen, guys, it's great what you're thinking. Uh, It's better to plan uh, when things are going well. And one of the things we initiate when it's more than two co-founders is to say, can you put together an agreement between the three of you of how things will operate? Because we've seen going forward once... Uh, the company reaches a certain size, when the startup starts growing, starts seeing momentum, uh, suddenly some co-founders feel a little left out or lonely, right? They're like, oh, we thought we're going to become the CTO of this business. We didn't expect it to be so large. And now maybe my capabilities are not enough to take it to the next level, right? So then that creates a lot of uh, bad blood, a lot of disagreements. And there, as a board member, uh, it's important to play the facilitating role. And it's better to fix these problems early on than, you know, uh, for them to fester and become full-blown problems later. So that's one. Uh, Second is on, uh, as I was mentioning, there's a lot of uh, capital flow that happens. 
sometimes the founders give it uh, give capital and it is parked as loans or uh, corporate loans or it could come from a parent or it could come from some family members none of these are accounted for so again there bringing in corporate governance becomes important ensuring that the roles and responsibilities are clearly defined as uh, is a role that we need to play giving the right direction for the company uh, whether to go achieve market uh, market share or to go capture market share versus achieve profitabilities uh, or to go after profitability build a sustainable business uh, all these can't be ad hoc decisions by teams it has to be well thought through and that's where corporate governance plays a role that's a brilliant point you make because most early stage entrepreneurs are guilty of saying yeah yeah let's you know that's housekeeping we'll figure it out later let's focus on the product on the company and numbers but i think you and i will both agree that it's less about housekeeping and more about building a foundation absolutely now i don't sit on boards but from what i've heard and read the board has two functions right at different stages at uh, of of a startup life cycle it's governance for the later stage and public companies and more on the guidance side for early stage companies and we can both agree that governance is very very important as it helps in attracting future investors because if something is run well and the business is great it's hard to come up with reasons not to be part of the journey and investing in them what is your advice to you know founders who are first time founders because maybe people who have been there done that have an understanding of how to build a board structure or how to develop um corporate governance within their companies but if it's a first time entrepreneur what kind of advice would you like to give them on thinking through this whole process so for first time entrepreneurs uh, especially those who have no, no experience of having built companies uh we normally recommend and i i particularly tell them that it's okay to look or seek for advice uh from people uh around you uh from experts it's okay to recognize that you probably don't have all the answers and it's fine to seek more experienced people's views or uh you know uh, or their experiences of how they have built businesses in the past right so uh with that once that acceptance is there in in the promoters or in the entrepreneurs uh, there are two ways to achieve it one is to bring some of these experts onto your board uh provided you see that they add significant value on in in the growth journey and as you said every startup has different growth journeys and for different phases of their growth they need different sets of um uh, advisors and board members right but what is very critical is you get the the people who are aligned with your vision and who will get you to that dream of yours right uh, because if you get very conflicting views then for entrepreneurs it becomes a huge challenge because they will get pulled in all directions and they will not know what to do or to execute on what they want to do right so that is one uh, suggestion that i uh, recommend strongly uh, the second is i also suggest fine if you're not able to bring them on to your board or you don't see too much of uh, value in them uh, in a long term but you do need them uh, in your early part of your journey create an advisory committee an advisory committee can be people with domain exp- experience with industry experience functional experience 
in in a startup's uh, life cycle uh, you need all of those and particularly so when you don't have a fully functional team you will need external uh, interventions from experts to bring them on as advisors so that's how uh, you know uh, and and also from for your subsequent rounds of funding it adds a lot of weight uh, when uh, investors see that you know you have been guided by the right set of people now that actually uh, is a good point that you made because it um, reminds me of a video that i had watched i can't remember who the investor was but i think on a panel he mentions that there was an instance where there was a company it had two founders you had the ceo who was taking care of all the day to days and then you had the other co-founder who was running as a president now usually you know it's the ceo's decision that kind of prevails um, and and supersedes the president's decision if they had a conflict now during a structuring of a board apparently what happened was the ceo had one vote and the president ended up having two votes now you can see the kind of problems that kind of develop with such kind of a structure and every time they had a disagreement apparently it went to a board uh, board vote and eventually conversations kind of got sore and the and the ceo ended up quitting the company so to avoid such kind of instances i think it's very important as you previously mentioned to lay out the foundations lay out the basics and also get some advice from people who have been there and done that either by sitting on boards themselves or entrepreneurs who have been there and run successful companies absolutely and not just run successful companies who have gone through the teething issues of a startup absolutely now you you sit on a few boards yourself both right. early stage and later stage companies and typically you would like a startup to have reached a certain point in its growth right before it's widely controlled by investors now in a startup that has raised multiple rounds of investments let's say for example agrostar in this case which is raised series cdc who yes. would call the shots and how is the relationship between the promoters and different investors managed in this scenario yes so that's again a very uh, touchy subject for many entrepreneurs uh, <laughs> and investors as you would uh, guess because um, you know when there are multiple stakeholders uh with uh, with different uh, alignments uh then it becomes uh, the then the onus of managing a board comes on to the entrepreneur right and uh, he should clearly set the agenda right when he brings people on board and and try and create alignment between all board members right so it can't be one board member asking you to chase market share while another board member is asking you to chase profitability third board member saying just go after uh, creating a, a, a large uh, business which will last 100 years and all three are talking very different languages then clearly the entrepreneur will go back very confused and there is nothing good that comes out of uh, such a disparate board right so um so then it becomes important for entrepreneurs to pick the right set of partners when they bring them on to the board uh, and 
and so saying you know most like in most cases entrepreneurs don't know right they don't know better and they're actually seeking investors to help them out uh, in in this evolution entrepreneur says listen i'm very good at execution uh, just let me do my operational work why don't you guys figure out what you want to say to each other uh, and i understand that i get that uh, but it, at the end of the day the entrepreneur is the leader and he needs to set everything else or every other stakeholder uh, in the right place right so it's important for entrepreneurs to step up and take ownership of everything that happens in the company including board decisions so that and so that that's why it becomes very important and so the power equations need to be managed well that's wonderful advice and i think a lot of our listeners both entrepreneurs as well as investors listening in will get a great sense of understanding of how to structure some of these conversations as and when their company begins to grow now i want to move into my rapid fire section but before i do that i wanted to ask you this quick question i you you were on a panel last year called women in finance leadership summit featuring some of the great women leaders from the industry in that you spoke about the need for women in leadership roles i also observed that you're the only female partner at avishkar now forget about the broader workforce how do we change this number in venture capital <laughs> i know i know uh, and this question keeps getting asked in multiple forums <laughs> and i really wish there is uh, you know one solution for this but when i look around and see all my uh, uh, colleagues and you know other vc funds uh one uh, trend that is emerging or has always been around is uh, we all have a familiarity bias uh we tend to go after things that we are familiar with we don't like uh you know anything which is out of the obvious for us in our world view right uh, and so that's why you will see that engineers tend to attract or get attracted to other engineers cas tend to get attracted to other cas right and a startup entrepreneurs in a certain space tend to uh, you know coalesce uh, together in a certain space so uh, there is a clear familiarity bias and uh, so it's it's very hard for people to open up to say okay i have a all male team now let's try and bring women and uh, we'll hear their perspective uh, perspectives are very different i have seen in our own team at avishkar we probably have one of the best uh, uh, balanced team we are almost 50 50 uh, 50% women in our team so probably one of the best in the vc industry and i can definitely see value uh, that women bring to the table they bring a very different perspective on uh, consumer behavior patterns on uh, you know even the sensitivities of managing uh, entrepreneurs uh, it requires a certain sensitivity and a certain skill set with some sometimes uh, i mean i i don't want to say this but sometimes our male colleagues may fail to notice so the perceptions the the uh, the, the perceptiveness is a little different and so uh, i have seen the benefit of engaging uh, with a diverse team uh, in multiple decision makings and i really hope that industry at large 
opens up to this idea of uh, bringing in different people uh, onto the team. And uh, the good news is globally, there is definitely a dialogue. Uh, there is a push even from investors, from LPs to diversify teams at every level. Uh, but however, I do think it's going to take time for women uh, to take leadership positions uh, in, in many funds. It's not going to be easy. No, these are very, very important points and I'm glad you touched upon it. And I personally take immense pleasure in bringing these conversations to the forefront. And I personally believe that more diversity in venture capital is required now than ever before. And not just in terms of male and female, but also from a diversity perspective, um, in terms of people coming in from non-tech backgrounds, people trying to come in with diverse sort of opinions. Um, and and if, you, if you take a look at traditional venture capital as such, we're guilty of having sort of, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of engineers or you have multiple entrepreneurs who have exited, who have gone on to become VCs. So it's kind of very similar to birds of the same feather flocking together. But if we have Correct. that diversity perspective, I think there are fresh perspectives that will come out of it, which will eventually lead to the discovery of new and niche startups. And maybe we can even, um, you know, create a space for um, exciting exciting companies at the end of the day. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you spoke about spoke about it. No, I absolutely agree. I think there is a need for diversity in every realm, right? Uh, whether it's in startups, whether it's in BC, PE, uh, or, or um, in other things. And diversity of every form, not just gender. Absolutely. Now that we've got that serious question out of the way, let's uh, dive into rapid fire, where I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh my. And fire some questions at you. And um, let's say interesting questions, in fact. So okay. if you're ready, uh, we will we'll start shooting some, some interesting questions your way. The way. Awesome. So what's the hardest thing about being a partner or being a venture capitalist? Uh, the hardest thing about being a partner is you're, uh, you're in the front line and uh, you have to bite the bullet. I, I, I wish I could say I agree, but eventually someday I hope I will feel the same way. <laughs> what, what would you like to change about venture capital in India? Uh, I, I think um, one change would definitely be open to diversity. Right. Uh, I set you of, up there. <laughs> yes, <laughs> open to diversity is definitely one thing that I would like to see a change in. Agreed. Now, how have you seen yourself change as a person during all your years in venture capital? Um, I have become a little more patient. Uh, so I have, it's taken me 10 years to realize uh, that what you see on Excel sheet is very different from what happens in reality. Right. And uh, it's, uh, it's important to start knowing the difference that Excel sheet numbers are just Excel sheet numbers. And actually executing on it is where the value is created. No, I love that. That's beautiful. Now, if someone is starting out in venture capital today, what advice would you have for them? Uh, patience is the key. Uh, and if you're here for just the short haul to say it's a very glamorous sector, I want to be here for uh, one, two, maybe three years. Uh, it doesn't work that way. You need to be here for a long haul. If you're not here for at least 10 years, then don't be here. That's, that's great advice. Now, what's one startup outside your portfolio that you admire and why? Uh, 
um, outside. So there are lots of entrepreneurs. I think you and I spoke about this before the recording. So maybe you want to bring that up. I don't know. <laughs> we did. We did. So one startup that I really admire and I've been tracking very closely. And I, I am a strong, uh, I am one of their uh, bigger, biggest users as well. <laughs> your fit uh, right because i am uh, quite a fitness uh, freak so to say and i quite like the whole idea of group training so cult is what they have started as a group training uh, for different forms of uh, workout and uh, the way they have built a whole well- health and wellness platform is quite phenomenal and uh, it, it's one of the startups that i really admire that's great. And as you know, that's one area that I'm extremely bullish about. And you and I can go on and on about discussing uh, that particular sector. So Absolutely. Uh, we can take that offline. Yeah, absolutely. Now, sure. lastly, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this because we're in this pandemic period. So what's one piece of advice you want to give startups who are fundraising during this period? Uh, one piece of advice is hang in there. Don't give up. Uh, It's going to be tough. There are going to be a lot of hard questions that will come your way. Uh, But just be patient. This too shall pass. Uh, All you need to remember is for the 100 people that you go and tell your story to, you just need that one person who believes in your story and your energy. And so don't give up. What a great note to end the podcast on, Shushma. Thank you so much for coming here. This was brilliant. You know, you had some great advice for startups and early stage investors as well. And there were brilliant insights from your time as, as a VC. So I've had a blast listening to all of your answers. So thank you so much for being on, on my show. Akash, I really enjoyed this conversation. Very different from any of the other conversations I normally have. Uh, fabulous talking to you. Let's be in touch. Shishma, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking time out today to speak to me and sharing your experience about being a VC in India with all of us listening. Hoping to find more ways to work together in the future. And I want to thank each of you listening as well. I've been receiving some really heartful messages about how this podcast has been helping you. So it's really encouraging and I hope like every other episode, this one too has some great insights for you. Keep your love and messages coming in guys. If you like this or any other episode, please rate, review and subscribe to us on any of the podcasting platforms that you listen to us on. I really appreciate your support. We've been hearing rumors of a second wave. I hope and pray we don't have to encounter that again. The last six months have been extremely challenging for all of us. Stay safe, try and stay indoors as much as possible and wear a mask if you are heading out. Take care everyone and until next week, keep hustling.